Welcome, everybody. How are we doing today? Good? Glad you're with us on this long holiday weekend. So uh, this weekend, July 3rd, this Sunday, uh, we are doing what's called around here, kind of at an internal level, a prophetic pause, all right? A prophetic pause means it is a standalone Sunday. So what I will preach on this morning is not in any way really connected to the greatest of these series, which we looked uh, through and studied through uh, throughout the month of June. And it's not connected to our wisdom series, which will be coming up uh, and what we will be studying through the book of Proverbs for the remainder of the summer. So it's a prophetic pause, kind of a standalone message. But although it is a standalone message, it is a bit of a sneak peek into what we will be studying in the fall, all right? Because I am uh, going to be teaching out of the Gospel of Mark, specifically that passage that was read just a few moments ago. So we're going to be looking at uh, and studying the book of Mark throughout uh, the entirety of the fall, the winter, and the majority of the spring. So we're getting back into a gospel, and we're going to be going through uh, the book of Mark, which we're incredibly excited about. So excited, in fact, that we thought, hey, let's throw on uh, and let's give our community a little bit of a taste of how we're going to be teaching through the book of Mark throughout the summer uh, to just get people uh, maybe geared towards what we can expect for the fall winter, and spring. So this morning, I'm going to talk about the importance of vision, the importance of vision. Of our five senses, I would say sight is arguably the most important of the five. Now, you could make an argument for touch being up there just from a safety perspective. A lot of uh, how we kind of move through the world, we've got to navigate by uh, feel and touch. Uh, it's how we know when we're injured, all those sorts of things. But sight to me seems like it's certainly one of the most important of our five senses. Now, again, my opinion and maybe an unpopular opinion, certainly for those who would consider themselves foodies out there, taste to me is easily the sense that I would say I could get rid of that one. Doesn't even matter to me at all. Now, some, again, may not agree with me on that one, but of the five, sight, I think, is one of our most important. So I want to give you a couple of uh, just quick stats that I think maybe illustrates this. It's estimated that 80% of all of our sense impressions are perceived by way or perceived by way of our sight. And that one-third of our brain is dedicated towards the processing of our vision. The human eye is made of two million different parts. And on average, can distinguish between 10 million different colors. The resolution of your vision, on average, is estimated to be 576 megapixels. The most current, I don't actually know, what's the most current iPhone? The 13? That's the one I have uh, information on. So the iPhone 13, its camera is 12 megapixels. The human eye, 576 megapixels. Besides your brain, there is no other organ as complex in the human body as the eye. Now, I actually think Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the writers of our Gospels, understood just how critical eyes and sight really are to the human experience, because they come up as a reoccurring theme throughout the Gospels. 
Many of Jesus' teachings refer to the eyes or one's ability to see or not see. And there are multiple accounts to Jesus healing the blind, giving back sight to those who had lost it. And in fact, early in his ministry, while in the synagogue, Jesus reads the prophetic words from the book of Isaiah in relation to his incarnation. And this is what he reads. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, you could read that passage. You could examine Jesus' teachings about seeing or the times that he uses the metaphor of the eye. You could even look at his miracles when he heals blindness and be tempted to conclude that one's physical sight is paramount. But clearly there is something else going on here. There is a deeper issue that's being addressed when the Gospels are talking about eyes, when the Gospels are talking about sight. Jesus is not solely concerned with whether or not we have 20-20 vision. Jesus desires to heal and restore our spiritual vision so that we can truly see and understand the world as intended. Jesus wasn't sent to heal people's eyes, but to give us what I want to call kingdom vision. Now, here is how I would say kingdom vision looks. To have kingdom vision allows us to steadily hold on to hope and joy amidst a sometimes hopeless world. To have kingdom vision gives us the wisdom to expose and work to redeem the injustices and evil systems in this world. To have kingdom vision ensures that we accept and respond to others with love, with grace, and with mercy. To have kingdom vision equips us to live and think in the radical way of Jesus. And having this kind of kingdom vision, this type of vision, might be more critical now than ever. So let's look at this passage from Mark 8, which we just heard read, because I think it has maybe something to speak to about kingdom vision. They, the disciples, came to Bethsaida. And just like before, the crowds in expectation were waiting for the arrival of the miracle worker, Jesus. And the blind man is brought to Jesus, and in a deeply personal response, Jesus takes the man by the hand and says he walks him outside of the village presumably to find a a quiet space for this interaction. And Jesus' next move, spitting on the man's eyes, would immediately remind us of the healing of the deaf and mute man just one chapter earlier in 7 verses 31 through 37. And while we don't for sure know why Jesus uses his saliva in these healings, the most reasonable explanation is that in the context of of first century Roman Jewish culture, human saliva is understood to have some sort of healing properties. And so by utilizing kind of this cultural understanding, this cultural tool, he was likely indicating to those who were watching in chapter 7 and the man who he was healing in chapter 8 of his intention to heal. And then something incredibly unique happens, maybe the only place that it happens in the Gospels. The man's sight is restored, kind of right? 
Jesus asks, do you see anything? And the the man responds, yes, I can see, but people look like trees walking around. So the man has his sight, but his vision is distorted. The man has his sight, but the vision is distorted. And this reminds me when I read this, reminded me of a story when I was nine, almost ten. Bloomsday in my family growing up was a pretty big deal. We just had Bloomsday weekend a couple of weekends ago, beginning of May. And in 1991, when I was nine, turning 10, the second biggest year of participation in Bloomsday's history with over 60,000 runners and walkers, I was participating in what was then my second race. I was running with my mom, my dad, my grandpa, and my grandma. And I was feeling much more confident in my abilities as a runner in my second race. So much so that my 80-year-old grandparents at this point were kind of holding me back. Grandpa and Grandma were uh, very committed to walking Bloomsday, and I was no longer all that keen on just walking Bloomsday. I wanted to see what I could do. So I had this conversation. I remember it was right around that uh, kind of that straightaway as you go past SFCC. I had this conversation with my mom and my dad. If I could run ahead and meet them at the end of the race, pretty tough to get lost on Bloomsday, right? You just follow the crowds. So run ahead and I'll meet you at the end. And so we agreed we will meet at the clock tower. Everybody knows the clock tower in Riverfront Park. That's where we'll meet. So you get, uh, finish the race, go through the chutes, and then go to the clock tower and our family will reunite. I was off kind of my first taste of like independence in a moment. And I was like picking my lane and dodging and weaving through all of these runners. And still to this day, as I reflect back on that moment, I'm not sure I've ever felt as fast as I did in that time, running as hard as I could past all of these elderly walkers. It was really (laughs) quite beautiful. So I crossed the finish line, successfully get through the shoots, and I get my bright purple finisher shirt. And like everyone did in the 90s, I immediately put it on and decided that for me, it was probably most efficient and easiest just to wait at the end of the shoots, the t-shirt shoots for my folks, for my family. I would reunite right there. Why would I need to walk all the way to the clock tower when I could just find them right here? And I was fine for a few minutes, but then started to wonder just how long I might have to wait while people are coming through. In a few minutes, turned into what felt like hours waiting for my family, and I started to panic. And the more I strained to look for my family, the more my vision began to just kind of blur and narrow as everyone blended into a large mass of what looked like a bunch of purple grapes walking around. Thousands of people coming through the t-shirt shoots, all putting on their purple t-shirts. Everybody looked exactly the same to me. And so at this point, I began to panic, and I started to feel lost. I started to feel alone, and tears began to stream down my face because I thought I may have to live in downtown Spokane for the rest of my life. There is no way I will ever find my family. And some incredibly nice volunteer noticed that I was clearly upset and crying, and she came and stood by my side and held my hand. She asked if there's any way I could recognize my family, and it was in that moment that luckily I remembered my grandfather was wearing an alarmingly bright 
yellow hat, neon hat, and I could actually see him right there. This is the, fic the photo. <clears throat> All of us reunited back in our living room. I spotted my grandfather coming through the chutes, and I was immediately comforted again because I had my bearings. As I reflect back on that moment, what I remember about the experience is that I could certainly see. It wasn't a matter of sight. I had the sight, but my vision was distorted in this purple chaos. There was so much going on. There were so many people, and everything blurred together. I couldn't discern like I was able to just a few moments ago as I was running and picking my lane, dodging and weaving between the runners. Like the man in Mark 8, I had my sight, but I could not see in the way that I needed. The man says, I see people, they look like trees walking around. And Jesus touches his eyes a second time. And the scripture says he could see everything clearly. Now, when you read Mark 8, I think you, you have to ask, does this story indicate that Jesus' first swing was a huge miss? That somehow maybe Jesus didn't have the ability to heal this man with just one touch. That maybe Jesus was still learning how to exercise his power, how to exercise his authority. But I actually don't really think so. I mean, I actually think that this is a very unique teaching about an opportunity of discipleship and a unique teaching about the difference between having sight and having vision. If you just read a few paragraphs previous to this, the story that proceeds in the book of Mark is the feeding of the 4,000, which, like I said, we'll be discussing in the fall. And then right after the feeding of the 4,000, there's this very specific teaching to his disciples about the temptation of needing a sign from heaven and a warning of how easily a little corruption in the spirit can affect the whole person. And his disciples at this point are completely confused as to what Jesus is actually even talking about. And so he exclaims to them, do you still see and not understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? And they answered seven. And he says to them, do you still not understand? Like the healed man in Mark 8, the disciples could see but they did not have the correct vision. They had given their lives to watching Jesus, but they did not see him for who he was and what it meant for them in their lives. And so this second healing touch was a way to illustrate that there is a significant difference between sight and vision in the kingdom. Because as Helen Keller remarks, the most pathetic person in the world is someone who has sight, but no vision. And I think the current church, us included, and its people are a little bit like the man in Mark 8. Many of us have sight, but either we have forgotten or we just can no longer see in the way 
that God intended. Our vision has become distorted and it's disrupting our lives. And to a degree, it's destroying the witness that we've been called to live out. I believe many of these distortions we are experiencing are connected to how our biases impact our biblical interpretation and our understanding of what it means to live faithfully in the kingdom. Jackson Wu asserts, furthermore, the inertia of tradition moves us along. We filter out certain texts and theological conclusions, or perhaps we will overemphasize ideas beyond what is found in Scripture. In effect, our traditions and Christian subcultures create biases and impose significance or meaning into a passage where it was not intended. So let's quickly look at five what I'm calling cognitive biases, some of these you will have heard, that I think significantly affect our vision. And I'm indebted to Brian McLaren for his work on this. He has a list of 13 of these, including these five. So I'm just going to offer what I believe are the most compelling, and then if you want to track down the rest of them, you are more than welcome. Here's the first one. Confirmation bias. We judge new ideas on the ease with which they fit in with our fit in with and confirm the only standard we have, the old ideas, old information, and trusted authorities. As a result, our framing story, belief system, or paradigm excludes new information we do not think fits. Comfort bias. We prefer not to have our comfort disturbed. As a result, we only accept that which keeps the status quo. Community bias, it's almost impossible to see what our community, family, friends, political party, etc., doesn't, can't, or won't see. As a result, we fall in line with the community's belief regardless of how we truly feel about them. Complexity bias, our brains prefer a simple falsehood to a complex truth. As a result, we attach ourselves to the easiest answer regardless of its veracity. And the last one, contact bias. When we don't have intense and sustained personal contact with the other, our prejudices and false assumptions go unchallenged. And as a result, we find it difficult to accept new and different ideas and people. Now, you take any five of these, and you can see how easily they're worked into the disciples' framework, distorting their ability to see Jesus Jesus said he was Lord, yet I saw him on the cross. He must not be who he said he was. Jesus encouraged us to love the outcast, but our worldview tells us those people are evil or worthless. Jesus just told us to pick up our cross and follow him. Sounds like way too much work. Jesus taught about a life free from worry, yet I'm still concerned with whether or not I will be able to sit at the right hand of the throne. Now, you take any of those five biases and you spend a little bit of time putting them into your own life and evaluating, and you might see just how deeply they're affecting your ability to see. And as long as we willingly walk around allowing our cognitive biases to distort our vision, the church will suffer indeed. Our ability to love others and faithfully follow the way of Jesus will be deeply impacted. A.W. Tozer wrote, we need a baptism of clear 
seeing. We desperately need seers who can see through the mist. Christian leaders with prophetic vision. Unless they come soon, it will be too late for this generation. And if they do come, we will no doubt crucify a few of them in the name of our worldly orthodoxy. In the same way that man in Mark 8 required a second healing touch of Jesus for clarity of vision, we too need a second healing touch to fix how we see, to expose and eliminate our biases, to earnestly and thoughtfully question our opinions and conclusions and evaluate how do they align with what we know to be true about Jesus, with what we know to be true about the kingdom. What I appreciate about the man in Mark 8 is that he didn't acquiesce after being healed, right? The answer to Jesus' initial question, do you see anything, was a simple yes, yes, I see stuff. I have sight. Yes, I can see, but then rather the man explains that his sight still was not right. Yes, I can see, but something is not right right. Something is wrong. Something is off. I see the world, but not in the way that I should. So how many of us this morning are willing to admit that our cognitive biases might be distorting how we see? And what might it look like for you to ask for the second healing touch of Jesus? How might you begin to see things differently if you received that second healing touch from Jesus? The book of Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning at shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition for sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I'm pretty convinced that the dramatic increase of anger and anxiousness and sadness and indifference that the church has felt in these past few years is a direct reflection of taking our eyes off Jesus of becoming entangled and hindered in our deeply held biases and the noise of our world. And our weariness and loss of heart will only intensify if we're unwilling to address our distorted vision. How we see should no longer be purely informed by our politics or social agendas more than biblical justice and truth. How we see should not be influenced by social media platforms more than the life and teachings of Jesus. How we see should not be illuminated only by our personal story and desires before the consideration of the other. To fix our eyes on Jesus is not an encouragement to check in every now and again. It's an invitation to change how we see It's an invitation to give ourselves to kingdom vision. Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis says this, keep your eyes on all that's good and beautiful and possible in the world because the stories we tell 
create the people we become. I think Lewis identifies a really important reality in this quote. How we see ultimately shapes who we become. How we see ultimately shapes who we become. So new community, let me leave you with these two very, very simple questions. Who are you becoming? Who are you becoming? And do you need the second healing touch of Jesus? Let me pray. Gracious Lord, we are we are here this morning desiring for change in our lives. We are here this morning desiring to hear from you. And we ask earnestly, Lord, that you would give us kingdom vision. Vision to see the world as you see the world. Vision to interact with people in this world in a way of love and grace and mercy. Vision enough to decenter ourselves and keep you central in all that we do, in all that we think. Lord, for those of us who are struggling with biases, struggling with those things that maybe have affected our sight or have created anxiousness in us, we ask for your second healing touch, Lord. We thank you for bringing us here this morning. We pray that you would go with us as we leave this place. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.